Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your gifts that you've given us. You've given us so much. You've given us your son, Lord, the given us the privilege to sing about Him and to Him, and given us the, the privilege and the honor to have Your Word, to know You. Lord, we thank You for that. And Lord, I, I do want to pray specifically for, for those today who may come here with a heart heavy or a struggle or a trial in their life or a difficult circumstance, that, Lord, You would help them by this time that we spend together. Encourage them, Lord. Help them to cling more tightly to You. Use your word by your spirit to, uh, Lord, draw them near. I think especially of those in Colorado now, Lord, that have suffered a horrific tragedy. God, just a terrible, terrible evidence of sin. Lord, I pray that you would bless those families that were affected. Lord, that you would use this, God, to draw them near to you. That you would use this to help them to trust in you. And Lord, that you would bring healing to the many broken hearts that are suffering now there. Lord, I also want to thank you and praise you for summer camp. The youth were able to go and just the work that you did and the many souls there and just the professions of faith that I heard about, Lord, among our youth. I thank you for how you used Alvin to proclaim your word and the many uh, people on staff who spent so much time and effort to, to get into these kids' lives. And I pray, God, that you would continue to work within the youth in this body. Grow them, Lord, Lord, and draw them to Yourself. Pray now for our time, Lord, as we look into Your Word, that You would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, any of you remember that uh, movie, uh, Yours, Mine, and Ours? Um, talking about the older one, the, the better one, the Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda. Uh, it was a, if you're not familiar with it, it was a movie about uh, a widow and a widower who had met one another, uh, fallen in love, and gotten married. And what made it unique uh, or unusual was the fact that the widow had eight children of her own and the widower had ten. So when they came together, there were 18 kids. I mean, you talk about a blended family on steroids. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, many of you have probably heard of the Duggar family. In fact, Kendall, did you meet them when you were in Texas? You're famous. Man, two weeks in a row. Uh, the Duggar family, they have a show that they're on. Uh, it's called, I think it's on the Learning Channel, called 19 Kids and Counting. That gives you an idea of how many children are in their home. And when you think about these large families, uh, you know, I watched an episode. I haven't seen much of that, uh, but I watched an episode one day, and it, it was a, uh, one that they had describing the, a, a normal day in the Duggar household. And just going through all the activities just to make the home function, you know, the, the meals and the laundry and the cleaning and the cleaning up of the, the rooms, the activities, the, the devotions, the schooling. And, you know, I just got tired watching just all the activity going on there. And one of the first things that people think about when you think about a large family like that is how do they get everything done? Just the, the normal basic stuff. I mean, how do the parents pull that off? And how do they do that and at the same time be able to have time to spend with each of the kids? Well, the answer to that is they aren't the only ones doing the work. Uh, it was neat watching that episode and how each child had been given a responsibility uh, to carry out within the home and that they each been trained and equipped to do certain things so that the house could function and so that the parents could be freed up to spend that individual time with the kids. And in a lot of ways, the church is like a large family. You know, there's a lot going on around here. 
Now, if you realize that, if you look in our bulletin or on our website, you'll see tons of things going on. Bible studies, discipleship groups, fellowship groups, Sunday school, Awana, youth ministry, we've got choir and camp and retreats and conferences, a bookstore, a band and an orchestra, a sound ministry, a food ministry, a men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry. I'm getting tired again. I mean, there's a lot going on here. So much more than that. The leaders could not handle all these things. The leaders could not do all these various tasks or ministries. The people need to be equipped to do that. You need to be equipped to do the work of service, the ministry within the body. And that is indeed the focus in our text this morning in Ephesians 4.11. The equipping of the saints to work in the body of Christ. You know, we've been talking a lot about unity lately and the importance of your involvement in the body. And there have been exhortations for you to get plugged in, to get involved, to, to get off of the sideline and, and into the game. But, you know, Paul takes another approach here in Ephesians 4.11. He, he, rather than just exhorting, he explains. And rather than just uh, uh, directing, he describes. Because commanding someone to do something isn't enough. We need to understand things about it. We need to understand the importance of the instruction. We need to understand the how. How do I do that? We need to understand the why. And these things are what helps move us to action. So let's take a look in Ephesians 4.11, an approach that Paul takes in encouraging us to be involved in the body. It is there where we will be encouraged to serve in the body by understanding how you've been equipped and why you've been equipped to serve. So please stand in honor of God's word as I read from Ephesians 4, starting In verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the body, the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love." You may be seated. Now, if you look at verse 11, we see the main sentence here. And that is that he gave some for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. We see the main subject there, he, the, the verb gave, and the object there is he gave the, the, these various offices and gifts for a purpose, for the equipping of the saints. And that statement, along with the phrase in verse 16, according to the proper working of each individual part, tells us something about the body. It tells us what is necessary for the body to grow. That is, every saint must be equipped to serve. Every saint must be involved. The word equipped here in verse 11 was used in Matthew 4.21 to describe the mending of nets. Or in Galatians 6.1, it was used for the restoration of a sinning brother. The word was often used for, as a medical term for the resetting of a broken bone. And what's interesting is um, about uh, actually five years ago, almost to the day, I taught on this same text here at Calvary. 
And the Lord uh, that week uh, taught me a personal, uh, used me as a personal illustration for this idea of, of, of uh, being equipped. Uh, some of you may remember, I, it was the Sunday before I was preaching on this text that I, I uh, got up in the night and some rogue chair just flew out and hit me on the toe, broke my toe. It's in the dark, it's wandering around, and I hit this chair, and I knew it was broken because the toe was not pointing in the right direction. Yeah, ouch. So the doctor adjusted my broken toe back into place. And then what he did is he taped it to the buddy toe right next to it. And so my broken toe needed that healthy one to equip it, right? It needed that healthy toe to be tied to it so that it could train it to grow back in the right direction because it was a clean break. Um, And that's the same way, you know, we're like that broken toe, right? We are incomplete, immature. We need to be equipped. We need to be trained. We need to be repaired. We need to have completed what is lacking in us so that we can minister within the body of Christ. And in our text this morning here in verse 11, Paul shows us how we are equipped to do that. And then in verses 12 to 16, he shows us why, why we're being equipped. Let's first look at the how in verse 11. We need to remember these verses come within a larger context, right? They're, they come within a larger paragraph that begin back in Ephesians 4, verse 1, where Paul told us there that Christianity isn't simply a, a creed or a set of religious facts that need to be memorized and followed, but that it is a response to the truth, the truth of a holy God sending His holy Son to reign supreme as king over all the earth, and to be a sacrifice for sinners. Paul urges the believer then to live a life that is worthy of that wonderful gospel of grace, to live a life that is consistent with who Jesus is and what He has done within us. And what's the first thing? What's the first priority of that worthy walk? We've been talking about it the last several weeks. What is it? Unity. Praise God. Unity. Unity in the body. And then we see there, as he's unfolding that in verses 1 to 3, the path to unity, right? We looked at the character, the attributes required or necessary to be preserving unity within the body. And then we looked at the purpose of unity, that it is consistent with who God is and who we are and what He has done. And then lastly, we looked at the provision for unity in the gifts that Jesus has given And last week we focused on the first kind of gift, and that was specific gifts given to each individual in the body. And this week we're going to look at a second kind of gift that Jesus gave, here in verses 11 through 16. Notice again it says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. This second gift is people. The second gift that Jesus has given are people with specific roles and offices in order to equip us. In verse 7, it says that Christ gives gifts to individuals. Here in verse 11, he gives gifts of individuals. And Paul identifies here five offices, five groups of individuals necessary to equip us to minister to the body of Christ. The first group that he gave were the apostles. We've talked about them before, back in Ephesians 2.20. The apostle is simply a proxy, one who is sent on behalf of another with the authority of the one who sent him. In the New Testament, this term primarily refers to the apostles of Jesus Christ. They had to meet three criteria to be an apostle of Christ. The first is that they had to have seen the risen Lord. 
Secondly, they had to have been directly appointed by Jesus, directly commissioned by him. And thirdly, they need to have the signs and the miracles that accompanied an apostle to show that they had been commissioned by God. Jesus identified the 12 disciples as apostles in Luke 6, 13. But then Judas forfeited that, right, when he betrayed the Lord Jesus. And so in Acts 1, we see the the 11 remaining apostles select by Lot, the 12th, and, and Matthias. And then along comes Paul, who was not part of that original 12, but he too was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uh, saw the risen Lord, did he not, at his conversion in Acts 9? And he was also commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus at that conversion, when Paul was told, you're going to be my witness to the Gentiles. And then, of course, as we see in the rest of the book of Acts, Paul had the accompanying signs and miracles of an apostle. And in addition to all that, we know Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he declared himself to be. The very first verse in Ephesians says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So it was these 13 apostles commissioned by Jesus to be his sent ones. And that brings up a question, because if we look in Revelation 21, as it describes the new Jerusalem that came down out of heaven, that it describes there are 12 foundation stones. And Revelation 21, 14 says this. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, if there are 13 apostles, then what 12 names are, are written there? This is a question that many theologians have enjoyed trying to answer. Because 12 and 13 are two different numbers, right? I done passed math, and I figured that one out on my own. So who's the 12th? The 11 everyone's agreed upon, but who's the 12th? Well, my, my thought is that it is actually Matthias, because Jesus said in the upper room to those who were there, the disciples who were there, you are going to reign on the 12 thrones of Israel. And I think that it is, and also Matthew 19, he tells them that as well. So I think it is those 12, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but that's what I think. Paul wasn't in the upper room when Jesus said that. I'm not sure what Paul will will be doing, but obviously he will have a special place as well. So there are those 13 commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are also others called apostles in the New Testament. There are those who were appointed not by Jesus directly, but were appointed or commissioned by the church. And we see uh, men such as Barnabas, James, the brother of Christ, Titus, Epaphroditus, and others who were called messengers of the church or apostles of the church. But they aren't the same as the 13. And I think here in Ephesians 4.11, it's a reference to those 13 who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus. Because the other references in Ephesians refer to them. And also, again, most of the references to the apostles in the New Testament are to those 13 chosen by Christ. And they were commissioned by Christ primarily to establish the church and also to proclaim the word that they were given direct revelation of, as we see in Ephesians 3, 5. Through them, we receive the New Testament as each book was either written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. So in that sense, then, Ephesians 2, 20 tells us that these men, these apostles were the foundation of the church, that they, through their establishing of the church, through the authority given to them in the early church, and through the New Testament and the, the uh, direct revelation that they had received from God, they were the foundation for the rest of us, Jesus being the cornerstone. 
And you know, in studying this and thinking about it this week, I just realized, you know, I, I don't express enough gratitude to the Lord for these men. For these men who sacrificed and gave up their entire life in order that they could proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, in order that they could establish the churches. And they suffered greatly. They suffered so much. Many of them, we don't know all that they went through. We have Paul and Peter and some others that are recorded, but we need to be grateful for them because have they not indeed greatly equipped us, giving us his word so that we could know. The next group that is listed in Ephesians 4.11 are the prophets. Again, they, along with the apostles, are called part of the foundation of the church. The prophets were those who had been given direct revelation. And in the early church, God used them to proclaim the doctrines of the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the New Testament itself was not completed till about 60 years after the resurrection. And that there was too many people, too broad a region for the apostles to cover by themselves. And so the Lord raised up these prophets to teach and to preach and to proclaim uh, direct revelation from Christ, as we see in Ephesians 3.5. Now, they, though they received direct revelation like the apostles, they were not the apostles. They did not have the same authority given to the apostles. But we can be grateful for two, for them as well, right? Because without them, we would not have the, the, the establishment of the early church as it was through them and the apostles and the New Testament and the doctrines of Christ. They are indeed the foundation of the church as well. Third group mentioned here is a group called the evangelists. This comes from the word evangelion, which simply means to proclaim the good news. It's a proclamation of the gospel. That was the primary function of the evangelists, is to proclaim, defend, and teach the good news of salvation in Christ. Now, while we are all uh, called to be evangelists in a sense, right? We're all called to evangelize the lost. There's a special group of individuals that God has uniquely gifted to be evangelists. And when we hear that word, we might often think of uh, Billy Graham or, or uh, Greg Lowry of Harvest Crusade. Which, by the way, I don't know if you've seen uh, out in front, we've got some Harvest Crusade flyers and things. We'll be talking more about that. It's coming to Dodger Stadium in early September. Now, a lot of times when you hear evangelists, you think of those guys at these large events proclaiming the gospel. But that's not the only thing evangelists do. They, they proclaim the gospel to large groups of people or one-on-one. Evangelists are, are those that have a great passion and desire and focus and energy to share the gospel. Again, we're all called to do that, but there are certain individuals that, that God moves in a greater way in doing that. Phyllis, Philip was called an evangelist in Acts 21.8. Greg mentioned earlier how the gospel is being spread in the book of Acts. Well, in chapter 8, we see Philip going from place to place proclaiming the gospel. He spoke the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch who got saved and then was baptized. He pro- proclaimed the gospel in Samaria, then on the road to Gaza, then in Ashdod, then in Caesarea. Evangelists may travel far away like Philip was doing, like missionaries. They are evangelists who take the gospel to faraway places. But those aren't the only evangelists. In fact, we see in 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. But Timothy was established in a church at that point. And that tells us that evangelists not only go far away places to preach the gospel, but also preach the gospel within the church and within the community to believers and unbelievers. They have a special passion to spread that message. And they are so used of God to encourage us to do that, for, us to be, uh, for them to be examples for us to do that. And we have some wonderful evangelists here at Calvary. 
Some who go out every week, every Saturday, proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I would encourage you to consider coming to one of those, to go, to see the gospel in action. Because it's amazing that the gospel actually saves people. That hearing the message about a holy God sending His only Son to die for sinners who have sinned against His holiness, who have sinned against His goodness, that, that hearing that message of the Lord Jesus dying on the cross for sins and turning from those sins and placing our faith in Christ, that actually saves people. People come to know the Lord through that simple message. That happened this week at camp. Alvin was proclaiming those basic truths. And you know what? Kids actually made profession of faith. They actually responded to that. It's, it's almost like God uses that message to change hearts. And you need to go on Saturday night and watch the message being proclaimed. You don't have to necessarily get up on the box and evangelize that way yourself, but you can hand out tracts. We have a bunch of them out front. These, What is this one? A trillion dollar bill. Don't spend it, but you can give, hand it out. It's got the gospel on the back of it. I gave a few of these out this week. You can evangelize in so many different ways. And if you go on Saturday night or go with those who are evangelists, you can watch how they interact with people, how they share the gospel. And it will give you instruction and and give you encouragement and help you to know how you can do that within your spheres. So you need to go. They meet here uh, 6 o'clock on Saturdays, and they're more than happy to take others out with them. The next group of people mentioned here in Ephesians 4.11 is called pastors. And actually, the word is shepherd. It's a word for shepherd here. Pastor is a, a Latin term. and It, it kind of gives the connotation to just talking about those who are, are like me, who are paid to teach and, and preach full time. But that's not the idea solely behind this word here. It's a shepherd. A shepherd is just another term for an elder or an overseer. Acts 20.28, 20, Paul said to the Ephesian elders... Uh, that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Or Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. So we see that this idea that, that pastors are not the only shepherds, that it is the elder, the overseer, who shepherds the flock. They're the ones who lead by example, who teach the people God's word, who protect them from error, just like a shepherd who feeds his flock and who protects them from wolves. And we have 14 shepherds here. We have 14 elders here at Calvary. Some of them are paid to be an elder full-time. Some of them are not. But all of them are equally committed to shepherd you. All of them are equally committed to love and care for you. And I've been on a several elder teams in my lifetime. And I have to say that the, the men serving here as, as your elders are one of the main reasons I came on staff here at Calvary. They aren't perfect men. We all sin. I've seen that. I've sinned. But they are godly men. Men who love you. Men who are committed to you. Men who have given so much of their time. And I don't say that so you'd feel guilty or or exalt them, but just so that you understand you can pray for them. That you can encourage them. That you can appreciate them. You can pray for their families. You can encourage them by uh, heeding the words of Hebrews 13, 17 that says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. 
as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. We have been blessed and equipped by elders, pastors, shepherds. The fifth group that Christ has provided to equip you are teachers. And these are those who are not elders. They are not the shepherds uh, because shepherds are required to teach. First Timothy 3 says that they must be able to teach. But God has also uniquely gifted other individuals as teachers, as those who explain the scriptures and call the hearers to apply it. The shepherd is, as I said, already a teacher. But again, there are those that, that God has also added. And the Lord has given us many good teachers here at Calvary. In His kindness, He's provided so many. We need to be thankful for them too. Those that, that teach you either in Sunday school or Bible study or small groups. And those that are spending time teaching your children. They invest a lot of time and it. It's pretty intimidating. And actually, it's a little dangerous to be a teacher. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment. That's a sobering text. That scares me. You need to be thankful for those that are willing to be used by God in that capacity. Here in verse 11, oh, before, I, before I leave that, I just want to think one way you can encourage them is just when, when someone is teaching you, be careful. I know it's a tendency that we can have at times to critique them, to kind of say, well, I wouldn't have said it that way. Or I don't know if that's really the case. Or, man, this guy is boring. But you know what? You need to be praying for them. You need to be, be appreciative toward them. And think of any ways that you can to, to help them. To help them. So here in Ephesians 4.11, we have, really, Christ has given God's dream team. These are those that have been set apart to equip you in order that you could do the work of service, to build you up, to train you, to reset and to mend what is broken in you. And you need to remember that this equipping that this training is more than just for your personal benefit and edification. Look again at verse 11, where he says he gave these five offices for the equipping of the saints, but then it doesn't end there, right? What's next? For the equipping of the saints to the work of service. You see, you're being equipped for a greater purpose beyond just your growth. These men are training you to do something. And that's where we're going to turn our attention in verses 12 to 16. We're going to look at the second point in our outline, why you were equipped. How you were equipped is through those five offices that Christ has given. Why you were equipped is what Paul's going to look at here in verses 12 to 16. You've been equipped to minister to the body for the work of service. Service here is that same word that's used for deacon. And it's typically used as in service to the Lord, ministry. That's the service that builds up the body of Christ, helping it to grow, to be mature, to be stable. Down in verse uh, Ephesians 4.16, we see the whole body grows from Christ, its head. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it is Jesus who is the source who causes growth in his body. But what are the means in which he brings about that growth? You are the means. You are the way Jesus builds up his body. You are being equipped to grow the body of Christ. Because listen, what, what am I up here teaching you for? Why am I standing here proclaiming the scriptures? Is it so you can know more about the Bible? Just have some more information? I mean, God has placed 
me here to assist you, not solely for your good, but for the good of those around you. God has placed these offices, these evangelists, and he's given us apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers to equip you for the work of service. What you're learning here is for the purpose of serving everyone else here, because I am not the minister. The elders are not the ministers. You are the ministers. You are the ones that you're being equipped. Our job as elders is to shepherd you so that you become the ministers. It's what it says here. You've been given these offices and these people, these groups of men in order to equip you, to to train you to do something. And that is to do the work of service, the ministry that's involved and necessary to build up this body, to build up the church. That's how the church works. And if any of you are just coming and attending and that's it, you don't get it. Attendance does not lead to equipping or it doesn't lead to growing. You may be being equipped by being in attendance, but you need to be active. Your growth in Christ is not all about you. It's about him and his bride. And you will find the most joy and contentment in Jesus when you involve yourself in his body. When you involve yourself in church, you've heard this, not for what you get, but for what you give. You know that. The focus here is not to have your needs met. It is for you to meet the needs of others. You see, we are not to be consumers, but communers. We're not to be consumers, but communers with one another. But so many people, right? What is their criteria for selecting a church? or a Bible study, or a small group, or a Sunday school class. They often base it on what I get out of it. But see, that's not the whole of it. It's what I get out of it so that what I can do to prepare me to minister to others. Do you see the difference? You have a responsibility. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you bear a responsibility to your brothers and sisters here to help them have a closer walk with Christ. That's your job. Not just mine. That's why you're being equipped. And some of you may think, well, I don't have a ministry. I, I don't sing too well. I, I don't play an instrument. I, I'm not really a good teacher. I can't work on the tech team because I would break something. I'm not very good with kids. I, I wouldn't know what to say on a hospital visit. I'd probably just make the poor person cry. Well, you know what? Are those the only ways that you can minister and serve in the body? No, of course not. The number of ministries available here at Calvary is really equal to the number of people here at Calvary. Because ministry is people. That is your ministry, one another. I mean, can you, can you invite somebody over to your place for a meal? And spend some time with them? That's a ministry. And if you don't know how to cook, you, you, you can you can buy one or, you know, but uh, can you ask someone how you can pray for them and then pray? Can you tell somebody what God's been teaching you, what you've been learning from your time in the word? Can you ask someone what they were encouraged or exhorted by from what was taught from the sermon or Sunday school or, or what they've been learning in the week? Can you show up at somebody's house? Can you show up with a, a bucket and a mop or, or a rake and then say, where do you want me to start? That's a service. That's a ministry. 
Can you get together with someone consistently and read and study the Bible together, pray with one another? Can you call somebody up and do that? The phone's a wonderful invention. Or Skype. I mean, it's better to be together face-to-face, but utilize these things as well. Call somebody up each day and say, can we pray with one another for a minute before your day gets going? Can you give more financially to support the ministries here or to pay off the building? You know, that building is being used for a lot of ministry, more than just Sunday morning. But we still owe some money on it. It's a great work of service, believe me, to to pay that off. Because we don't have that building here just to show off to the neighborhood that we're some big church. That's not the point of it at all. We want to use it for Christ's glory. We want to use it for, you know, I watched VBS here. There were 225 kids, many of them not from this church. That building is being used by God for that. Consider your giving so that we might be able to, to pay that off. That's a ministry. Can you get a prayer sheet and faithfully pray for others in the body? Can you volunteer your time to help in VBS or Awana or Burbank Health Care or, or Child Care here? Can you set up tables and chairs? Can you pull weeds? I love it when I come by and I see folks out in the front pulling weeds out of the, the ivy. You know, that's a ministry because that sends a message to our community that, that, that we want a church that, that, that is clean and neat and, and represents God rightly, even in what it looks like. Can you commit to getting to know one other person here better for the purpose of accountability and prayer? I mean, these are things any of us can do. And, you know, Calvary Bible Church, we are committed to preaching the word, right? We are committed to the scriptures, but let me tell you something, if, if that's all that happened here, if, it's, if this body just showed up, we listened to a message and then went home, this body would not grow. This body would not mature. If all that happened here was preaching and then everybody left, we would not be what Christ has called us to be. Because I can recall a certain church, the very church that we're reading about that Paul wrote this letter to. In the book of Revelation, what did Jesus have to say to this church? He rebuked them. Not because their doctrine was bad. No, they had right doctrine and they defended it. He rebuked them because they were not serving Christ as the first love. That they had moved away from that. And I don't want us to be in that position. Again, the Bible is the foundation. Understanding and knowing God's word is the foundation But Christ causes growth through using his word and equipping you to do the work of the ministry. Remember that. You need to minister to one another in order for this church to grow. The second outcome of you being equipped is to mature the body. The first is to minister to the body. The second is to mature the body. If you look in verse 13 of chapter 4, it says, "...until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God." to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And here Paul uses three different terms to describe maturity. The first description is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Again here, uh, faith is what we talked about before. It's a subjective faith, this body of truth in the New Testament, particularly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is maturity comes when there's a unity and understanding that message. And also maturity comes when we have the knowledge or unified in our knowledge of the Son of God. That's a deep, intimate knowledge being discussed there, a full and complete knowledge. Maturity comes about when we are unified in 
not only intellectually understanding Christ, but experientially. It's abiding in Christ that Jesus spoke of in John 15. And this spiritual maturity comes about when we are all unified in knowing about the Lord Jesus and in knowing Him personally. It's not achieved when we feel the same way, but it's when we understand and believe the same truth. When we all are on the same page regarding what Scripture says about Jesus Christ, about His gospel, about knowing Him, then we are mature. And that right doctrine is crucial for unity. A right understanding of the Scripture is critical and vital for maturity in the body. And that's why we make instruction in the Word of God a priority here. Almost everything that you are part of here at Calvary, it's going to have something connected to instruction from God's Word. And that's because it is the primary means God uses to equip you for the work of service. If you think about too, if you look back in, in verse 11, all those five offices, their primary function or role is instruction in the Bible. Instruction in the Word of God. It is critical. It's all about the Word, folks, right? Faith and knowledge come through the Word of Christ. Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ richly, abundantly, profusely dwell within you. That's where the growth comes. Are you consistently in the Word? Are you spending time in the Bible? That is crucial. Truth just doesn't jump out of the walls. It doesn't ooze into you from your pillow or your chair. You have to dig. You have to study. You have to invest time. And I know many of you know these things. I just want to encourage you. That's how growth will happen. That's how you're being equipped is as you spend time in the Word, as you hear it instructed, as you're taught in it, that's what equips you to do the work of service. Going back to verse 13, we see a second description of spiritual maturity when Paul says, to a mature man. Mature here just means to to be complete or perfect. Spiritual maturity is obtained when the body as a whole looks like one mature man. And notice Paul there uses the singular. He says man and not men to emphasize that point. We as a whole together reflect maturity in Christ The church is mature when there are no immature parts, no undersized arms or legs, no oversized ears or noses, no missing hands or feet. Third description that Paul gives of spiritual maturity is when he says the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's simply to the measure which is Christ's full stature. It's a picture that that the body itself is consistent with the head, that, that what the body looks like matches who the head is. It measures up to Christ. I would wonder how, how well do you think we as a body reflect him? Because you've been saved, not only as individuals, to look like Jesus as individuals, but also as an entire group. Look at what he says there again in verse 13. Until we... No, there's, there's a word after that. Until we all... Until we all attain, until we all reach, until we all make it to that certain point, which is maturity in Christ. Again, the issue isn't whether you alone have arrived. The issue is whether we all have arrived together. Every believer here in this room. Because as long as there's one person who's immature in the Lord, then our body's not mature. Again, you're not being fed simply for your good. You're being fed so you will exercise. Yet so often we can get a self-centered view of church that, you know, I am here to receive all that God has for me so that I can grow. 
That's not the case. You are here to receive all God has for you so that you can help someone else grow. That's how it works, brothers and sisters. We need to embrace that responsibility that we have for one another. You know, sometimes in the youth group when I was there, we'd play this game where we would tape out a box and then we'd tape out a line and we'd have these teams. And the goal of the game was to get your entire team without that box. But you had to do it by not touching anything outside of the box. And while you were in the box, you couldn't step outside of it either. And so it was interesting watching this game because most of the time what you'd see is you'd see the athletic kids jumping into the box right away. And then they'd kind of be impatient with the ones that weren't as coordinated having more trouble because the problem was if you all didn't make it in the box you had to start over and there were also some kids that would stand off in the back just you know that's a dumb game right and so what's interesting is you know this would all take place and they'd end up just arguing with each other sounds a lot like church at times (laughs) instead of you know which team won what do you think which team actually won the ones that figured that out hey we got to do this together They were the ones that would win as the more athletic people would try to help those that were having more of a struggle with that. And and then also them encouraging, hey, come on, be a part of this. Those who didn't want to participate. You know, we are a lot like kids in that game. It's a perfect illustration of the church. You know, we can, many of us maybe grow mature and then we look down on others who aren't quite to the same place we are. Or those who are on the fringe, we don't reach out and pull them in. We need to not do that. We need to not do that. You need to help them. Don't jump on the island yourself and then wait for everyone else to come up, catch up with you. Until we all attain to the unity of faith. Your growth in Christ isn't a race. It's not a competition. I mean, the Bible talks about it as a race, but it's not a race against one another. We need to see this not as your race, but as our race. Help your brothers and sisters be more like Jesus because we win when we do it together. Remember, you're being equipped for this. You're being equipped to minister to the body. You're being equipped to mature the body. And thirdly, you're being equipped to protect the body. Look at verse 14. It is there we read, As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The mature man in verse 13 is contrasted with immature children. And notice Paul changes from the singular man to the plural children. I think what he's doing there is kind of subtly pointing something out. That that when we're unified and growing and mature, we're as one. But disunity exists among the immature who are acting all like individuals. Plural, children. The spiritually immature are described here as like being in a boat tossed back and forth within a storm on the ocean of doctrinal chaos, under the ever-present threat of of being drowned or destroyed. Every wind of doctrine here just says many different kinds of false doctrines that, that creep in. The immature believer is vulnerable. They're in danger. They're vulnerable to false teaching. And where does it come from? Right? The trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. And the world is full of satanic deception, is it not? You don't have to go very far here in Los Angeles to find cults or false religions, false teachers. In fact, my family was almost nearly sucked into one when I was younger, but fortunately my dad saw the dangers and got us out. 
But how stable are you? Could you defend the gospel? If someone who versed in, in their beliefs came along, would they shake you from yours? Could you articulate what the Bible says about justification by faith alone, about the deity of Christ, about same-sex marriages, about good works and salvation, about the Trinity, about divorce and remarriage, the inerrancy of the Bible, the sovereignty of God, the, the humanity of Christ? And perhaps maybe you are mature enough and you could uh, point people to uh, verses and explain these things and defend them. But what about those around you? We have plenty here who aren't to that place yet and they need to be helped and encouraged and they need to be protected, not just by the elders. There's not enough of us, folks, but by you as you're investing time in one another's lives and helping each other to be warned and be careful because Satan will find the weak link. Satan will find a way in. He works constantly to do that. It's not just the elders again who have that responsibility, but you do as well. My son's been taking karate the last couple of years, uh, and he's been learning a lot. But one thing that I appreciate that his teacher has been talking to him about and pressing upon him is that with these skills and abilities, they're not just for him to use alone to defend himself, but now he has a responsibility to help others in need. I think that's a perfect example of the point here is that we're being built into and trained and equipped for the purpose expressly of being helpful to others in the body of christ to minister to them to help mature them to protect them and fifth uh, fourthly to grow them to grow the body look at verse 15 speaking the truth in love we're to grow in all aspects into him who's the head even christ literally the word there is truthing one another He's not talking about being honest with each other, though we do need to be, and we'll see that later in chapter 4. What he's talking about is doctrine, speaking the truth to one another, the doctrine of, of Christ, the doctrine of Scripture, the gospel, who Jesus is, how he wants us to live. We see this often in several other passages. I just read Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing, that's counseling, one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish or counsel the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. You're called to continually be teaching, exhorting, counseling, helping, being an example to one another. There's many other passages that we could look at. But did you notice something in those two verses that I had read to you? That there's no mention of an elder or a shepherd or a pastor or an overseer. Who, is, who are those texts directed to? When it says one another, it means... You, all of us together, have a responsibility to counsel and instruct and encourage one another. And Paul reminds us that it needs to be done in love, right? Because our tendency can be to do that in harshness or in kindness. And my question to you would be, are you doing these things? Are you assisting others in their walk with Christ? Are you truthing others on a regular basis? Or do you leave that for somebody else to do? True love is expressed when we are truthing one another. And true love is to give what can never be paid back. And that is your time. When you invest and give of your time to, to serve one another in the body. So we can see from these verses, hopefully we can see how, how the body works, how growth works within the body of Christ. Hopefully you can see how and why you've been equipped and are being equipped 
You're being fed and trained so that you can make a difference, so that you can have an impact, so that God could use you in growing this wonderful, wonderful entity that he has made the church. Because, you know, Christ could grow his body on his own without us, right? Could he? He could, but he's chosen not to. You know, I think of uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. You, you remember that, right? When the people were gathered around Christ, listening to him all day there, watching him uh, perform miracles, healing the sick, and teaching them with authority. And then at the end of the day, Jesus, he felt bad for them. He probably heard stomachs growling and little kids crying, you know, and everybody's hungry. So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, we need to feed them. His disciples go, are you kidding me? It would take like half a year's salary to feed these thousands of people. Jesus said, well, go, just go and see how much food you can find. And so they look around and search. And you remember what they found? All they could find was this one kid with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? And then you know the rest of the story. Jesus prays and, and, and he multiplies the fish and the bread so that everybody's totally stuffed. Like after you leave you know, hometown buffet. I mean, just everyone's gorged, and there's 12 baskets left over of the bread and the fish. You know, what's, what's always struck me about that story is the kid. Because if you think about it, Jesus didn't need those five loaves and two fish to get going, did he? Jesus doesn't need a starter kit for a miracle, right? Jesus could create out of nothing. He's done that before. In fact, the whole universe was out of nothing, was it not? Yet he chose to use that kid to feed thousands of people. And we're like that kid. Because God doesn't need us to do his work, but he wants to. He wants us to. God, you know, he isn't required to use us to save the world, but he gladly chooses to. He could grow his church just fine on his own. But he wishes to have us be a part and actually work through us. You are the means. The church won't grow as it should without you. You've been given a basket with some bread and fish in it. Different kinds of fish, different kinds of bread, different amounts, but you have a basket. He's given you those gifts and equipped you through the apostles and prophets and pastors, evangelists and teachers. Use what He's given you to minister to one another, to serve one another. Jesus indeed will build His church but He will only build it through you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank You for Your gifts that You've given. Thank You, Lord, that You have given us so much to equip us, that You have not called us to do something, that You have not also given us the means to be able to do it. You sent Your Spirit when You returned to heaven so that He might equip us and he might bring conviction and encouragement and, and and help us use the gifts that you have given. Oh Lord, I pray, it's my prayer, my earnest prayer, God, that you would move within our hearts, God, that you would make Calvary Bible Church one that is committed to seeing all of us grow together until we are all unified in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. So that, Lord, we would rightly represent you in our community and that we would Lord, grow as you intend us to grow. Father, help us. Help us to know your word. Help us to apply it. Help us to get involved in one another's lives. 
so that we might be a body that honors and pleases you. We pray in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.